Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Rob. How you doing? Hey, Rob. Hi, Alan. Hi, Paul. Everything okay? In Australia, we've had a lockdown for quite a while, so it's taking us a while to get back to -to face-to-face church. So this coming Sunday is the first Sunday back face-to-face. Oh. oh. Lots, Lots to get ready for that. Yeah. I kind of summed up the blog. I've read it twice. It's brilliant. Very uh, good. You, you summarized it all for us. I don't even have to read anything else. It's all there. <laughs> uh, that is the grand conclusion that I'm drawing from Coakley. Mm. It's not exactly there in Coakley, but I think it's implicated. It's there in Dionysius. And I think it is a kind of re- the co- recovery, the sort of recovery that we need to make in this secular age. Yeah. Sorry, just before that, Paul, I'm sure you've reflected on this. Where would, if Sarah Coakley was here on this Zoom call with us, where would she diverge from you or where would you diverge from her on this conclusion? Would she have a problem with anything you've written on that blog post? As far as you can tell, (laughs) it's a tough question. (laughs) You know, I did disagree with her earlier on the issue of suffering. I don't think there's anything in this. I'm drawing out and stating, I I don't think that I'm saying anything that she would disagree with in terms of Abba Father. Yeah. In other words, she is explicitly not wanting to go the feminist route and call God mother. She doesn't say all of this, but you know what I've said is I think that there is a reason maybe beyond our own ability to articulate, but we can articulate some of it, that we can characterize the masculine as this notion of in ontotheology, the notion in forms of philosophy, or maybe just the modern, not the postmodern, but the modern, in that there is this sensibility that we can sum it up, we can say it all, that everything is, you know, open to human reason, human language. And that then, I think, fits with Paul's notion of the law. Now, she's not saying any of that. I'm just saying that. I'm drawing that out. And of course, by calling that masculine, that is a a kind of characteristic of the bad father. I think there is a way of saying, you know, well, if my understanding of what Paul or what the New Testament is saying is the predicament, I think calling that a failed relationship with the father is certainly sums up the human predicament. And I tried to say this in, in several different ways. You know, maybe it's that we replace the father with the mother. I assume that's still the same problem, you know, that in pantheism, in forms of monism, in Gnosticism, you know, there is this balancing out with the feminine that is a a focus on the feminine. Well, no, actually, it's the same problem. Then you just counterbalance. And so if you think of identity through difference, or you think of a monism, a dyad, binary, or tritheism. I presume that we're more or less stuck in either a monism, Eastern pantheistic monism, but also in a lot of feminism. And the turn to the feminine, I think there is then 
a return to this kind of Gnostic notion of earth and, you know, earth is mother and that we're absorbed back into this. So I, I may have said it more explicitly than she did, but I don't think I've said anything in this in this that she would disagree with. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, no, no. I, I was just curious. Um, I, I don't think you either of you are disagreeing with each other. We're stuck with this idea of God's fatherhood on uh, our human perspective of, of how a father works. From my perspective here, here in Mexico, that creates a problem because, you know, we have a lot of problems with absent fathers. Th this would create a, or a recapture, you know, more of a Aristotelian type of God. <laughs> someone who's absent, someone who's far away, someone unreachable. This whole idea of using Romans 8 as a prayer in which we participate with, you know, God, our Abba, I think it, it, it makes it so much better to explain, you know, how, how that uh, whole thing works. But I, I just think it's a great perspective, at least for me, because I, I don't think I've ever really seen things this way. You know, every time I have to explain God's fatherhood, it's always trying to figure out examples of, well, you know, I had a good father. So, you know, let me use that example. But there's a lot of people who don't even have a father or have a bad father. So she does a great job of like flipping things over and say, well, the true fatherhood example, we have it from God. And so that's how we should evaluate our fathers, not the other way around. And I think we usually start, you know, the other way around. Or even when, when, when it's like the sex conversation, like with Freud, like every, everything's about sex. She does a great job of flipping that out and saying, well, no, desire is about God. We, we learn what true sex is when, when we actually see, you know, God, not, not the other way around. So it's a switch. And at least for me, I have to rework things in my brain now and try and see it through that perspective. But yeah. what I am thinking, though, is we should probably start with this class before we actually jumped into the philosophy class with with your book mr action all right we <laughs> use her every now and then in the book and i'm like oh okay now i get it and there are a few things that i'm like oh now i understand the quote <laughs> but i'm gonna have to reread your book again so <laughs> now i think i have more context to it oh good you know the thing with freud and sex well actually you can say that about any number of thinkers. That characterizes all of the modern. I mean, this is really what modernity is. You know, this God talk, it's really about the human predicament, you know, and of course, they're saying that in a kind of atheistic mode. But actually, that atheist conversation is some of the best conversation to do what she did and what I'm doing here. Oh, yeah, it is about the human. And the human is about God. In mm. other words, uh, yes, God yeah. and sex uh, do go together, not the sense that everything that we're saying about God is really about sex, but the two do need to be integrated. And so I went through Marx. You know, yeah. can, can Marx teach us something about Christian economy? I think he can. That what Marx is doing with the economy, you know, is really what Hegel's dialectic is doing. Mm. Oh, yeah, there is this system that is mm. in place, and we're all subject to it. And as Christians, if you believe in capitalism, well, Marx is partly correct that what you tend to do with God in that system, you know, and what Marx is thinking here, I, I don't, you guys have probably been through Max Weber, the idea of the secular and the rise of capitalism. Hmm. 
And so where does capitalism, you know, where, what is the origin of capitalism? Max Weber traces it back, and whether he's right or wrong, I think at least he's partially right, that he goes back to specifically Calvinism and Geneva, but also you could begin with, even before that, Lutheranism. You know, before this, there were, you know, the way the economy worked, it really wasn't a money economy, a capitalistic economy, but with Luther's making all people priests and every vocation then a kind of service to God, well then, if you're a storekeeper, how do you show God's blessing? And this gets very close. You know, we all are familiar with the health and wealth gospel. You know, I, I think that's clearly terrible, you know, heretical. But what I would suggest, yes, but actually the health and wealth gospel is itself arising from the same thing. The way you're going to show you're a successful shopkeeper, blessed by God, you earn a profit. And of course, it's not your wealth, that savings, you know, there is the whole idea of accumulated wealth. And, and out of this, you know, what Weber is tracing is that the Protestant Reformation lays the ground for the, the rise of capitalism. I think that's right. We're going to abandon one theological economy, but we're also abandoning a literal you know, economy with the Reformation. And so today, what economic system reigns? It's almost without controversy or without competition that capitalism, I mean, even, you know, this is Zizek's point about China, that communist China is now the most successful capitalistic system in the world. Uh, what he means is, yeah, it's a controlled capitalism. It's a communist capitalism, but it's still capitalism. And so you could begin with Marx. And, and in other words, we don't want to just throw out Mm. The insights that these secular thinkers are bringing, and of course, that's beyond what I was able to do in one blog. You know, Dave Rawls wrote on Facebook, he said, well, you could write a whole book about mm. that paragraph. Well, yeah, you could. You could write many books. You know, each thinker is deserving of his own book. You know, Freud, we've done more with Freud and sex, and that ties in more directly to what Coakley's doing. Carl Schmidt is a maybe a vaguer, less well-known figure. He was a Nazi jurist who, maybe in a different context, Ernst Kantowitz years ago wrote a book called The King's Two Bodies. And, and it is just, what is a king? How does sovereignty work? And of course, under the monarchy, where the in a Christian monarchy, the king is in some way God's man, right? That God has appointed him or is subject to the law. You know, this is David in the Old Testament that even Nathan comes and challenges him. But as we lose Christianity and we stay with the notion of sovereignty, you know, this is Calvinism. Calvinism is really about all about God's sovereignty. But this is also reflective of a political age, that the legitimation of power, power is its own legit legitimating force. You know, why, why do you get to be the ruler? Oh, because I, I am the ruler, you know, hmm. that power is its own justification. Well, what happens in terms of the law? Are you all familiar with Freud's depiction of the primal horde and how society first arises? Freud, he thinks, I, I'm never sure what Freud's doing when he writes these kinds of histories. You know, is he 
telling us something that he thinks is historically true? Is he telling us a myth? But in his depiction of the way that you know, culture first arises, that there is the father figure. And the father figure then, uh, he keeps all the women to himself. And so his many sons have no one to marry because the father, the patriarch, he keeps everyone in, in under his authority. Mm. And the sons then eventually rebel. That is, they want to be like the father. They too want access to the women. And they kill him. And of course, Freud said, being primitives as they were, they are cannibals and they kill him and eat him. And what he, you know, what he's thinking here, actually, he's kind of taking a jab, I think, at Christianity and the Lord's Supper. You know, Freud uh, prides himself on his anti religious stance, on his, you know, he's, he's both anti Jewish, a strange thing in the Nazi period when he himself is fleeing Vienna, you know, because the Nazis are, and his own sisters, I think none of them survive. They're all killed in the death camps. And yet he writes the book, Moses and Monotheism, in which he describes the rise of Judaism with Moses in very similar terms, that it is this rise of religion around the totem and taboo. You don't have to believe any of this, but in some way, he's hitting upon certain truths. And that is, you know, if you think of Gerard that in mimetic desire, that you become the thing that you desire. And that's Freud's point with the, uh, the taboo. You know, the one thing that every culture, you know, this is true, the, the one forbidden thing in any culture is incest. The idea is, oh, well, that must go back to this primal father. But then in many cultures, there is what is car called carnival, or there is, you know, an erasure of the lines that gets celebrated in which the totem and the taboo, you know, they're, they're celebrating the father. They want to be the father, but of course, they're also having to pay the price for having killed the father. Whether any of this is true, the point is that they're what Freud calls a kind of unconscious guilt arises. And this, I think, gets at what the Old and New Testament are describing. There is this kind of self-punishing conscience that we develop in relation. You know, this is the Oedipus complex. Again, I don't know if, what, how true the Oedipus complex is. Every child wants to marry his mother and uh, kill the father. In other words, he wants to be the father. This fits into Girardian picture that the model is also the obstacle, right? In other words, the man that you most admire in the world is your own father. In fact, you would like to be your father. Well, for you to be your father, you need to get rid of your father. Now, most of us don't do that, but what we do is go through, we resolve the problem with what Freud calls the Oedipus complex. And that is that we, he uses the word, we cathect. That is that we we actually take the father into ourselves, but we also take the, our relationship to the child within ourselves so that that father-son relationship, the relationship between the law and the ego. In other words, this is where I think, oh, you may not have believed anything I just said. You must say, oh, that's, that's crazy talk. But by the time we get to this, we're now talking Bible talk. 
that there is this punishing conscience that is let loose on the ego, on the eye. And this is precisely where Freud develops the notion of the superego and the ego. That is, the ego is split between these two things. Isn't that at least tracking with what Paul is describing in Romans 7? In other words, I just did all of this, and the resource that I used is psychoanalysis, and I think this is an example of the kind of resource that we have. Theology has not been doing its work for, I think, for you know several hundred years, because theology has turned from the world to talking about God in the abstract. Mm. And what, we've, what we don't have is precisely what we do have in a lot of these secular thinkers. This is precisely what Carl Schmitt says. He says, oh, the very structures of the modern state is simply an emptying out of theological categories and, you know, secularizing those categories. The state becomes mm-hmm. the church. The state ministers be- replace the priest. The, you know, the whole thing is functioning. And, of course, there's no God, per se, in that, and Schmidt was a Nazi. You know, keep, always keep that in mind that this stuff is deadly. It's not that we've, you know, Nazism, I think it manifests communism, socialism, Marxism. These are systems that have taken, that have done what Schmidt describes. They've emptied theology out. You know, I think I just see Marx as a, a kind of Christian heretic. He's just positing a kind of Christian utopia. He just does away with the, the Christian categories. So once we've got that, and if we can reverse that and say, oh, yeah, all this stuff we do need to engage, we recognize, oh, this is precisely where God is at work and where he needs to have been at work. But unfortunately, theology has rendered itself ineffective. It, you know, it's, it, it, it is inconsequential in yeah. terms of the psyche, in terms of politics, in terms of economics, in terms Everything. of everything. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, w- I was just um, sorry to bring it back to uh, practical sort of church life because, you know, I was thinking what kind of preaching series I could do for my people next year to help them begin to get at some of the what, what you just were saying just now, Paul. Because I don't know if you found this island with the people you, um, you ministered to, but a lot of my people at church say how often church is just unreal. It, it doesn't feel real to life. And I think that's why, because theology, sermons, a lot of, you know, Bible talk, it's just like, what are you talking about again? Yeah, it's, it's abstract, otherworldly. So then I was thinking, I, I wonder what you guys think about this. Could I begin to address some of this stuff if I had, like, for example, you know, some kind of, obviously, you have to do a lot of work. It's not just a matter of, giving a 20-minute sermon, but, but you got to start somewhere. If I had a preaching series where I would, someone could do something like finding God in sex or finding God in food, or where I dive into the areas of people's lives where, where we actually live. You know, we, we love food, we love fun, we love, and, and then helping people find those signs of yeah. God and then taking the next step up. Uh, I wonder if that would help a little bit of the whole integration of people's faiths, which so often is just not, right? 
I'm curious what Alan thinks. It's kind of difficult to put this all together because we have yeah. created such a separation between mm. church and, and, and everything else. Yeah. yeah. I think like something that I've been doing here to try to bring those things together is to use the scripture a little bit more as an allegory, not not like completely, but I do change every now and then in, in, in classes like or, or sermons just a few words to try to make it more, you know, more, more actual. Uh, mm. Like, for example, you know, when, when Jesus tells Peter, you know, put down your sword, you know, those who live by the sword will be killed by the sword. I change it for a gun. Yeah, sure. So yeah. it makes it a little bit more, more for our time. When I see like, for example, in my class with, with uh, Romans there at the Bible college, you know, whenever there's this competition between, you know, Caesar and, and Jesus as, as lords, I change it for, you know, the name of our president. Yeah. And so you know, it creates some sort of shock for them because they're like, yeah. oh, is it that extreme? And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's talking about their life, right? It's talking about real life. Yeah. yeah. So, so for example, like they're at the Bible college and like some of, you know, some of our churches sometimes have, you know, like the, you know, the Mexican flag and, you know. Like, oh, wow. And, so like I would even ask them questions like, would you think that, you know, the, the church in, in Rome would have, you know, the eagle there of the Roman Empire? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, that's what we have in our temples. Uh, wow. So like I try to do that, you know, like yeah, yeah. we covered chapter uh 14 where paul speaks about those who are strong and eat meat and the weak who eat vegetables and of course that's something extremely odd to us we don't have a problem with eating meat or you know any sacrifice what are what we're going through uh this month uh christmas some people like the christmas tree and then there's the ones who don't want a christmas tree because mm. it, it comes from pagan roots so mm. you know, should should the strong still put up their christmas tree or <laughs> or should they avoid it you know so like i try to do those kind of things to try to make it more build a bridge between that gap that's been created but yeah like what i said like you know with coakley's even i have to try to work my brain around like oh i i, I have this backwards you know like like what she was saying with freud you know his uh idea of everything's about sex and then she flips it it's like well no sex is about desire and desire is about god yeah, yeah. like even talking about nietzsche his famous line which i mean it was borrowed from <laughs> luther the god is dead but i mean i think it all ties in you know we we kill our father in this uh, what's it called the oedipus complex mm -hmm. we kill him in order to fulfill our desires <laughs> so it's like the same circle going mm -hmm. there and but but yeah, I mean, once we realize that that's what we're doing, we're trying to fill these voids of desires that we that we have mm. with other things that is not God. We're always going to be stuck in that circle of yeah. trying to God every time just in order to, to feel full. Uh, yeah. But once we empty ourselves from ourselves, then we actually have a chance to God pretty much alive in us. Yeah. Through the yeah. Right. And so I think that's her whole point there. They're tying mm -hmm. it up. But yeah, I, th I think, you know, even stuff like this, it could be preached from a pulpit. But it, I, I do think it's difficult because most people don't have this kind of background of pretty much any of these things that we're talking about. But yeah. that's what I, at least that's what I do. Like, I try to find certain things that seem too far away for, for us, like meat for, for the idols and stuff like that, and try to put some modern thing there. And I mean, they laugh and they know that I'm, you know, I'm changing the words yeah. there. Of course, yeah. the Christmas tree is not going to be there in Romans, but <laughs> yeah, but they get the point that oh, okay, yeah, that's 
So this mm-hmm. is what's happening for them. So this is what's happening for us. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a better way to yeah. build that you know, bridge. And I've been able to talk this year specifically more about politics from the pulpit, which it was something that, you know, I was even said several times, uh, you know, a preacher cannot speak politics behind the pulpit. You know, we've been going through Matthew precisely to point out that, you know, if Jesus is king. It's all politics. <laughs> our, our president yeah. is not. I just changed Caesar for Andres yeah. Manuel, you know, that in the name of our president. So for them, it's like, at first, kind of a shock, you know, it's like, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're mixing things. And I'm like, well, I'm not mixing things if you actually realize that Christ is the only, you yeah. know, our only king. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. and after a while, they started grasping the idea and they're like they're a little bit more comfortable now you know realizing that oh well yeah yeah if apply it to our times then yeah is you know is jesus really our king yeah or? yeah yeah and that's good that's very helpful the other thing i was uh, reflecting on it's related to this how unmoved untouched and unimpressed i am so often in church and how little it speaks about my real life and how quickly movies, music, and art gets me right there. It doesn't necessarily ever, you know, get me my, you know, to the God of Christ, the God in Christ. It's like movies. They, they move you. They do what you're saying, Paul. They go to where God is in life. They, they don't think that's what they're doing. They think they're just talking about life, but they're talking about God, right? That is God. And so when you feel yourself in tears having seen a, a very moving scene of a family reconciliation or forgiveness or loneliness. Why can't we do that at church? <laughs> That's what we should be doing because we actually have the whole story. We know the whole. Yeah. So when I preach, I think obviously in 20 minutes, you can't, as to Alan's point, people don't have all the background reading. But if there's any way in which God can use the words of scripture and whatever words come out of my mouth to let people know that part of your life that feels so deep and dear and special. That is God at work. God is there. His fingerprints are on. And and then, you know, maybe point them on to the next step, you know, closer to Abba, Father, the Trinitarian. Yeah. But, uh, you know, after being almost done with, you know, Romans, and we're definitely done with Galatians, it, it actually came to a point where, one of my students said, I wonder what, you know, what would uh, Caesar would have thought if he read Romans, <laughs> you know, seeing all the things that Caesar would claim for himself. So the student was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure Caesar wouldn't need any witnesses against Paul to, you know, cut his head off. He, he's got plenty there in, in his yeah, signature yeah. on that on that letter. So I was like, yeah, OK, yeah. she got the point. It is difficult because they have, you know, you have to work on rewiring how people think. Unfortunately, I think even now with the pandemic, things got worse because people started looking at so many sermons, sometimes online and so, you know, so much bad, (laughs) bad theology out there and just started getting people a lot more confused. But if if people trust us enough to change a few words in scripture, just to make it more, Hmm. it, it helps it. A lot more. You know, I, yeah. I have had students that have said, well, you're changing the word sword for gun. I'm like, well, we don't have swords anymore. So <laughs> trying to make it a little bit more of a, yeah. you know, for our time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, was, I was like, well, thank God I didn't went all the way to like nuclear assault. <laughs> I could have right. gone darker. <laughs> but it's hard work to, like you said, 20 yeah. minute try to explain something uh, that they've yeah. had wrong for I don't know how long. 
<laughs> yeah, so the, the challenge is there. I wonder with non-Christian, can I ask a, a existential question around this? Because I'm, I'm completely in agreement with you about how knowing all this and believing it uh, sends you back into the world to more deeply engage it and uh, live it out and enjoy it and seek for God in, in those things. But sometimes, I guess, evil and tragedy and despair and pain just seems so much... I know it's not going to win, but sometimes it feels like it's winning. <laughs> and so even when you have those beautiful moments of God and life and love, I, I find it sometimes hard to hold on to them when all the other stuff happens either to me, to people around me in the wider world. Uh, I'm not looking for a, a solution because I know there's none, but... Um, yeah, I wish it wouldn't feel so real as in all the ugliness and the Satan and the, the false religion. I I feel what you're feeling because we're living in dark times. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the more you know, the darker it seems yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Exactly, you know, how do you do that on a personal level? I mean, Christ conquers, I believe that. But sure. I can't, I can't, I'm not always clear how that's going to work itself. <laughs> that's right. I mean, in my own life, you already know this. I, you know, I've done no better than anybody else, but Faith and I have been through very dark times and yeah. we kind of just pulled into our shells for a while. Yeah. What I found redemptive is this kind of thing, is, sure. is the conversation, whether it's with friends, whether it's a formal, you know, that we get together in, in a class. I just find that highly redemptive mm. and it's no, that's not even an answer. It's just it sustains you. It, it's it's just, do you it. have other habits, other personal habits, uh, daily habits or weekly habits, like that's exercise or eating I, good food. Or, <laughs> or I do <laughs> that. I do that. I make sure that, you know, I, uh, I go to the gym and okay. do something. I swim or I play racquetball. And okay. I do, I do think that's very important. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I do spend, you know, like I did that blog and mm. I actually, that's a week long process, mm. but I'm, but I'm also in the process. I'm finding it very redemptive for me. Mm. It is a kind of prayerful communion that I have. And I'm, I'm almost hesitant to use the word prayer. That's what I have in terms of communion with God. And I feel like when I've worked through something like that, or come to that, that is a kind of, I'm feeling that I'm utilizing what I can do, but also that, that God is that at work in that. I, I think we all have our gifts hmm. and that in some way we just need to lean into that. Hmm. We all have things that we can do. Just looking at you, I know you have gifts that I don't have. I'm of an age and a time and a place that I, I think that we can profoundly appreciate other people. Hmm. You know, there may have been a time when I was younger, I would resent you <laughs> for, for your gifts. You know, sure. somebody as, as gifted and talented and good with people. But I, I think that's the other thing is that, that there's people that have gifts all around us. Hmm. I think that we learn to enjoy other people hmm. for the sure. And so I think also then about ourselves that we find what we can do. Hmm. And that that is our artistry. That is what we should be about. Whether other people see that as fruitful or not, that makes no difference. 
Sure. The point is that you're feeling that this is your fruit-bearing activity. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, you know, if it's preparing a sermon of, of reaching people, being, you know, I, I perceive you're a very, dip- I'm not a very diplomatic person. I'm not. You're not too bad. <laughs> I've met a lot of more uh, in-your-face, aggressive, blunt people. <laughs> you know, Australians, Australians can be quite uh, blunt, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. So, but, yeah. but yes. That's all I got is is to lean yeah. into the gifts that you have, the friends that yeah. you have, and sure. uh, that's a life. Yeah. No, thank you, thank you for that, Paul. I, um, I, I've been very blessed by your gifts, uh, brother. Um, I mean, the, the why? I mean, given this blog post as I was reading, I thought, wow, he's he's really pulled everything pull everything together so well and summarized. <laughs> it, this this would take me a whole term to write, <laughs> or three months. <laughs> it's like a term yeah. paper. So, no, thank you. That, that was, uh, it's, it's very helpful. It's a real blessing. But, um, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, Paul. I've, I've really, uh, I've really enjoyed um, the class. Again, oh, I appreciate thank you, Paul. All right, Alan. Okay. Good to see you. See you guys. Well, All right. Good night, Alan. Thank you, Paul. Thank All you, right. brother. See you next week. Okay. okay. See you okay. Tuesday. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.